Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Gap to Gap Radio. I'm just super excited about our guest today. It is Cheryl Kemp, the commissioner of the National Pro Fast Pitch League. I'll give you a little bit of background on her. She is uh, currently the commissioner of the NPF, National Pro Fast Pitch League, since 2007. She's a founder of Club K in 1990. She founded it in 1990. And at the time, at that time, I guess it was the largest fast pitch softball training site in the world. She also wrote the book, wrote a book titled The Softball Pitching Edge. I guess maybe it could be considered the book, the pitching book. But she's also a TV analyst for college and pro softball, working with ESPN, Fox News, Major League Baseball Network, and more. And is a studio analyst for the NCAA tournament on ESPN. During her playing career, she played at Missouri Western and was the MVP, I believe, the MVP of the national champions at Missouri Western in 1982. I'll I'll clarify that, make sure all that's accurate when we talk to her. And she also pitched for the USA national team, earned gold medal for at the World Cup in Beijing. Uh, She's a member of four Hall of Fames as as of today, I guess. Uh, More to come, hopefully. NAI Hall of Fame, the Missouri Western University Hall of Fame. St. Joseph Baseball Hall of Fame and the Amateur Softball American State of Missouri Hall of Fame. Based on what I've seen, I can go on and on, and there's a lot of accolades here about her, but we'd like to get to know Sherry. So, hi, Sherry. How are you? I'm good. Thanks a lot. Boy, that was uh, <laughs> that was a lot there. You could have you abbreviated that. I know, and, and you know, I was uh, when I do – the great thing about doing this show – is I've seen you on TV, of course, and everything, but doing this is, I, I, the, in today's world, you can go on the internet and find stuff about people everywhere, and I was watching interviews and different things with you, and when I'm putting together this bio, I'm going, I just get this feeling that you're pretty uh, humble, and it's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes when they start listing all this stuff, but but I knew that you wouldn't say most of this stuff, so I figured I would go ahead and put some information in there. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we got a lot to talk about. As I said, in this show, what I try to do here, because you're obviously in, in uh, the commissioner of National Pro Fast Pits, there's a lot going on with that now, and I don't want to uh, minimize that at all. But I do want people to get to know you personally a little bit about your background, kind of where it took you from A to where you are today. And I guess, where did you grow up? I grew up in St. Joseph, Missouri. Okay. Yeah. So that's where you actually ended up now. Is Missouri Western in that area or is it just? It is. Okay. All it's right. in St. Joseph, yes. Yeah. So you, you stayed local. You went, You had some options. Did you have a lot of options going to college or you just pretty much said, I'm just going to go to Missouri Western? Uh, 
Uh, you know, it, it boiled down for me. I had several, even though that's that's kind of predates the uh, hot and heavy um, right. recruiting time. But I did have my final choices. I did visit the University of Missouri, um, but my final choices were Creighton. Um, I thought I wanted to uh, get a law degree at that time, so Creighton was very appealing to me and uh, also fairly close to home since it's in Omaha. And then uh, Kansas, and I actually I actually signed um, and went to Kansas for a very short time, a couple of days, and went, went back home um, and played at Missouri Western my entire career. Wow. So um, Missouri Western was NEI at the time, and I guess they're Division Two now? That's correct. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I participated in NEI as well. And that's one of the things I think is really super cool about this that, that uh, I want listeners to hear. And you hear this stuff all the time that you've got to be like division one to get to places that you have uh, got to places you've been. Uh, you don't, you can be from a small school in Western Missouri, uh, Western Missouri and uh, NEI type of a school. Yeah, I agree with that. And for the, the very long time that I had the training facility, I really tried to impress that on young players is number one, go somewhere where they want you. Um, number two, go somewhere um, that you can play and compete unless, you know, unless you want to, you don't mind being a bench player or, or a role player in your entire career. Um, and, and number three, try to go somewhere that, that feels like home to you, where you're going to be comfortable with um, with living at least the next four years. So I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot to be said for being in an environment that will allow you and encourage you um, to excel. And no doubt, no doubt. Now, what was your major? What did you end up uh, graduating with? I ended up majoring in English. Okay. Yeah. So that's helped you a lot with your uh, online presence, I'm sure. It has. And, and I uh, had an emphasis in communications. Uh, when I went to Kansas, I was going to major in film, television and film. So mm-hmm. it's kind of funny, a little bit fateful that I ended up um, in working in television. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, you never know. Again, things, uh, you know, you can have a, a, a well-laid-out plan only to be interrupted <laughs> by, you know, the circumstances of life. So I, I have uh, I have no regrets. I'm very happy how everything turned out. And to be an English major um, has certainly served me well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, a myth a little bit. I mean, I know we have control over a lot of things, but it's there's a lot of things that are laid out for us, I think, probably. The um, Club K, now I'm assuming Club K was from Club Kempf, uh, and you created that. Is it, Was that also in Missouri? It was in Nashville Okay. when I started Club K. I was still trying to play for the Ray Bestest mm-hmm. Breakouts, which is a Connecticut-based team, and I was trying to figure out how I could do that and um, support myself, still pay the rent. <laughs> so right. I had a teammate, actually, um, and when I played in St. Louis, I had a teammate that had started teaching lessons, and now that's a, 
you know, really common thing. At that time, mm-hmm. it really wasn't. And wasn't, she was yeah. talking to me about, um, you know, about how to set up lessons and some things that really stuck with me. It was one conversation that stuck with me forever uh, through Club K, and it, it turned out um, working out really well. So what was in the conversation? Was there something you want to share that was like, did it inspire you or just kind of redirected you? Well, she was, we were both pitchers that hit and played other positions. And um, it was, uh, my teammate was Becky Duffin, uh, who was one of the greatest pitchers in the world, um, was Mm -hmm. on USA and um, uh, really a highly competitive pitcher before she passed away at a very young age, unfortunately. But um, we had this conversation and she said, hey, I, you know, I don't know if we were talking about, you know, jobs or what, but she she said, hey, I, I've, I've been teaching in St. Louis, and, and I'm really, you know, I really enjoy it. And the thing that she said that was a difference maker for me was uh, about creating class, classes uh, with pitchers mm-hmm. and as, a, as opposed to doing them one at a time. And had I not had that conversation with her, I, I think I would have, um, I, I'm not sure it would have occurred to me. I think I would have thought. Mm-hmm that just the natural way to do it is, is a one-on-one lesson. And mm-hmm. um, had I done that, I don't think I would have experienced um, half the success that Club K was able to enjoy uh, during its 15-year history. Wow. Wow. 15 years. That's a long time in, in that type of facility in Louisville that you see. I've been in this area for a long time, and there's been – Softball, baseball, combination facilities or separate facilities pop up, but they don't last that long. And did I assume you did the one-on-one as well, but you, you um, I guess, focused mostly on the group? You know, I did very few one-on-ones, and I'll tell you why. And I say it to anybody that talks to me about lessons to this day. Uh, we don't teach math class one-on-one. We don't teach algebra. Mm-hmm. We don't teach rocket science one-on-one. We teach classes. And Uh if you assemble classes effectively, and that means you you can't have an 11-year-old in with an 18-year-old that are in totally different places. But if you have four or five pitchers and a class setting that's set up for that, established well, and you have a good lesson plan, um, it's, it's actually very conducive to their learning. And mm-hmm. they, there's competition in the class. So they don't, you know, they aren't just in an isolated world. There's somebody that's standing next to them that might be throwing a little harder or getting this pitch down a little bit more. And I think that's really good. Um, it's a good motivator. And I think also in the, that same regard, that pitcher that's struggling and is, you know, and if, if I was one-on-one with her, I could just keep saying the same thing to her. But if that player next to her is getting it, she can just, mm-hmm. she can look. Yeah. She can watch mm-hmm. her. She can see it in action. So, again, I think the secret to that is making sure, and as an instructor, you have to stand your ground. You, you have to put people in classes that belong together and not put somebody in that class because they really want 6 o'clock on Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're able to create that environment, there there are a ton of positives uh, in that that you don't get from one-on-one. Now, um, 
what about hitting? Do you think it works as well with hitting? I do. I do. Yeah. I think it's the, yeah. I think it's the same thing. And our hitting coaches, I, I, I never taught hitting, um, uh, but our hitting coaches did that. And we had, you know, the environment was conducive to that. There were two cages, uh-huh. there were, um, a, you know, hitting stations right alongside of it. And uh-huh. usually, um, you know, athletes were rotating through those stations and uh, your instructors and instruction has to be clear and concise and has to reach everybody but it's um pretty cool because yeah uh, because of all the advantages I, I mentioned on pitching as well wow yeah it's um so i've been doing lessons off and on for a lot of years and i do hitting i don't do pitching but uh hitting and fielding and in this area in the louisville area it's rare you see some people do the group lessons but i just talked to one of the girls that i do uh it's like four of us kind of used to share a a building and now we've kind of branched out a little bit and uh, one of them she's talking about uh she that's all she does now is group lessons and it's she said it's changed her life it's changed her world so that's um it's kind of interesting yeah, I think you have to have the space. And listen, I think just like you can be good at anything, I think you can be bad at anything. So I don't think just <laughs> because you roll four or five people out there that it's gonna—it's magic. But mm-hmm. I do think that the um, the advantages uh, are prevalent, and and if it's done correctly, I don't see the disadvantage. I did some private lessons in there, and. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't think the athletes performed well. I thought mm-hmm. um, I just I just didn't ever think it was the it was the best way to go about it. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So um, shifting gears a little bit back, um, Missouri Western, you won the ni- national title. Was that in 1982? Was that? Am I right on that? It was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's the only title that Missouri is. I don't know if it's the only title, period, but it's for, it looks like the only softball title they've had there. Yeah. So it's that had to be pretty one, crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty you know, crazy. It was a lot of fun. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, that was my hometown. So my friends and family could casually stop by and watch. I, I also played basketball at Missouri Western. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed the environment. I, I don't have any regrets of not playing what, you know, people would coin as big time um, Mm -hmm. division one or anything like that. And I was able to continue my career beyond that, which was uh, fortunate, but Mm -hmm. I, you know, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of energy. We had um, St. Joe is a basket softball town. It always was historically, it was men's basket softball. Uh, it's what people mostly saw when I was mm-hmm. little, um, but people understood the game. Uh, we mm. actually, uh, in the NPF, Australia was there two summers ago. They actually played out of St. Joseph, mm. and um, they, still they had you know they had good crowds and they had a lot of people enthusiastic, but they understand and appreciate the game. So for us to go all the way to the national championship and win it. Uh, you know, there was great press coverage and there was just a lot of enthusiasm, which was fun. Super cool. Very cool. And then you ended up uh, playing after college and continuing that. 
your national title with uh, in Beijing again, super exciting, I'm sure. Yeah, at that time it was. So when I was young, the I used to read the uh, uh, newspaper put out by the Amateur Softball Association, which has since been renamed to USA Softball, but. Uh, they had a newspaper called Balls and Strikes. They might still have it. But I was kind of a softball nerd, and I got that publication every month or whenever it came out, and I would read about teams. And the, the greatest thing going, because softball wasn't in the Olympics at that time, but the greatest thing going was the very best of spray cats. So I had um, read about them growing up, and that was my dream. And so I ultimately um, became a break cat. And um, was that was monumental for me. That was the team I referenced out of Connecticut. And through that involvement, I was asked uh, to be a member of the national team in, in 92. And so the, mm-hmm. the competition then was, it was called the World Cup. It was in Beijing, China. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we did win the, the gold medal there. So it was a it was cool. It was a, an honor, you know, to wear the, yeah. the USA uniform. And it's something that when the players talk about it today, I, uh, I understand. I understand the mm-hmm. privilege and the honor that it is to pull that jersey over your head. Exactly. Yeah, super cool. Super cool. Now, um, I don't want to bring up bad stuff here, but what was the stomach flu stuff? Wasn't, I, if I remember right, wasn't the stomach flu going around all of the athletes at that point, not just softball? Uh, not that I know of. It wasn't, okay. it wasn't anything that we experienced. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it was other teams or anything. I was doing some research Maybe and so. I saw it. Yeah. And I was trying to remember, uh, you know, what's crazy, Sherry, is 1992. What is that? Like 28 years ago. <laughs> not that, I, I mean, I'm older than you are. So I guess, that, yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's it is crazy. Now, uh, what I find, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just said it's ancient. Yeah, it's ancient yeah. history, practically. Yeah, when you think about 1992, again, for my age, and I guess we all kind of like that seems like it shouldn't be that long ago, but it's it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what I really find interesting is how, as you said before, the path that we take in our career, obviously in 1982, you probably were, you were pretty much feeling pretty much at the top of the softball world, at least regionally. And, um, um, feeling like it, it probably somebody come and said, you're going to be the, the commissioner of a professional fast pitch league. At that point, you probably would have giggled or laughed or said you're silly or whatever, mm-hmm. but, uh, to go from, uh, your experiences as, as a player and then your club K and everything, what got you to the pro fast pitch, um, um, administrative level? You know, so I played as long as I could. I played into my early thirties and then I, um, kind of crossed over with the training facility for a while. And then, mm-hmm. Right around 2000, I got the opportunity to you start to see softball on television a little bit, and I got the opportunity to call uh, Conference USA. Actually, it was a Conference USA final. It was in Louisville, and huh, cool. um, 
uh, Sandy Pearsall was the person that called me and oh, asked me if I'd be yeah. interested in it. And uh-huh. it was kind of love at first speak with <laughs> me and uh, and softball and television. And so mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. And that was really what ended up making my decision for me to um, transition from Club K um, into something else because I did, I wanted to do the television and um, it went from that one game to more and more opportunities. And there's just no way I could do that and continue to teach at the level that I was. So um, that happened. And then it was television that I was covering the pro league. I was covering, uh, I think it was like a 15 or 16 game package with the yes network. Uh, a team called the New York, New Jersey Juggernaut. And I was covering, um, I was commentating on those games in 2004 and got to know the league, the NPF. And from there I covered, mm-hmm. I did some Comcast coverage of the Chicago Bandits in Connecticut and Chicago. And so I got kind of familiar with the league and the people that, um, the league had transitioned from the Coles family to individual uh, owners. And so I just talked a lot, I think. Um, you know, I had opinions <laughs> and I, you know, would say, I think this, and, and they hadn't had a commissioner. Um, mm. So in 2007, uh, one of the primary owners, Bill Conroy out of Chicago, um, asked me if I would you know, what I would think about becoming the commissioner. He said he thought it would take about four hours a week, which is something oh, I wow. still laugh at. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, that's how that all happened. Again, kind of, uh, I've been very, very lucky in a lot of ways to have things just kind of happen uh, and the opportunities arise. And that was that was another one that, that sort of just was birthed out of something entirely different. So um, that's how that's how I got here. Yeah, um, so 2001, the league folded, and then 2004, it revived. Was that because the ownership changed? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and so the name changed a couple of times, um, Mm -hmm. but the Cole family started it. Jane Cole wrote a uh, master's thesis on it when she was at Utah, and Mm -hmm. and the coach out there helped her with it. And they kind of fiddled around with some exhibitions and stuff in the early 90s. Um, And a lot of the women's majors players weren't even taking it really serious. They were talking about playing with an 11-inch ball and leading off, a lot of things like um, baseball more -hmm. more so. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. weren't even really turning our heads at it. But then they toured um, before 96. Uh, the WPSL put a team together, and that was the Coles family, uh, and they toured against Team USA to help prepare them. And then, uh, so the, it was off and on. It was Olympic years really hurt um, the league, uh, and uh-huh. so they struggled because all you know the top teams, uh, the top players, eventually started playing in the league, and then they would be gone a lot, and uh, it was it was hard. So in 2004, the Coles family, I wasn't with the league. So I'm kind of summarizing, but right. um, from what I know, the Coles family said, Hey, if a group of owners will agree to do this separately and operate teams separately, um, we will pass along the IP 
um, the interworkings, the, uh, you know, will let you have the, the system that's set up, and that's what happens. So the National Pro Passage League was really a series of independent individual markets and ownership that took on the operations of, of teams. And the Cole wow. family was gracious enough to just sort of um, let all of the experience and the established system pass along. So that's kind of how that went. So your role as commissioner is basically herding the, the kittens of the, of the league, I guess. Yeah, so in 2009, we became a franchisor, and so the teams now are um, franchises. Um, that's the structure. Now, what you've seen in the past three years is we've had um, integration, thankfully, of uh, mm-hmm. international teams, like that was first China and then Australia and Canada and Mexico now. So mm-hmm. um, those are uh, not franchises, but just more, more or less licensees with these federations coming in to, to play for the season. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I went, drove up to Dayton, Ohio, and watched, I believe it was uh, the, the team out of Cleveland uh, and the team uh, Australia team, I believe. Okay. And um, I was, uh, I actually, kind of just went for, I was uh, vacation and I just I knew it was going to be a game there and I just drove up uh, anyway I found it interesting because I was trying to figure this out is so you have teams from Australia but their home base is going to be uh, some city in the country they're not like obviously flying back and forth you don't th- their home game is not in Australia right Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we had so, China here, we had Australia here, and then um, Canada and Mexico, and they yeah, all had so, sort of, if you will, a host team that that really covered their game day operations. Right. I guess what Canada is in Illinois, that's a new program from what last year. Yeah. Yeah. So where is the China home base? So. China uh, did some different things. They came in in 2017, and they played Mm -hmm. through 2018 to 2019. Um, And they were not, uh, of course, the coronavirus and everything exploded Mm -hmm. this this year, but they were not set to come back this year. But their first season, they came in real late. They came in in April. So they just traveled around. They, They didn't even have a home. Their second season, their home was uh, Daytona Beach um, Community mm-hmm. College. They actually played at Daytona State. Um, and then they stayed in Daytona for 2019, but they went to the minor league um, baseball stadium there called the Daytona mm-hmm. Tortugas. And mm-hmm. it was just a bigger game day operation and that kind of thing. I see. So um, pretty creative, I guess pretty unique, I think, in the sports world is having international teams coming over in this, I would assume, I don't know, I guess I've not either not paid attention, but that's pretty unique, isn't it? It's really unique. It, it made yeah. us the most, in, in fact, it, you know, we were a very small league, but it made us the most diverse professional league uh, mm-hmm. anywhere. Um, just mm-hmm. because we had complete international teams, not just players, but we had complete international teams 
that were taking part in the league. Yeah. Now, is that something that just happened, or is that something that you or your staff or someone said, hey, this is a pretty cool idea, or how did that kind of come about? Yeah, it was a, it was a very conscious effort, and it combined a couple of things. Number one, once the um, softball came out of the Olympics after 2008, federations defunded the sport because wow. it was no longer an Olympic sport. So around the world, those softball did not get the same uh, financial support that it enjoyed from usually government funding uh, when it was an Olympic sport. So those sports had really lost a lot of ground in their development, and they did not internally in their own countries have the infrastructure to play a lot of games at a high level of competition. And they could go somewhere. They might be able to go play in the world championships or something, but that was a very finite number of games. And uh-huh. still, some of those are going to be lopsided because there's a lot of teams in there that are weak. So the NPF offered those teams an opportunity to play 45 to 50 games against very high-level competition, and it, it really let them take a big step forward. So somebody like China – who wanted to make sure that they qualified for the Olympics, and ultimately they did not. Um, But they wanted to try to make up all that ground that they had lost since coming out of being an Olympic sport in 2008. So that's what they did. Um, Australia, the same way. Australia's Mm -hmm. been on the medal stand for all four Olympic Games, but they had really slipped uh, in their their competitive uh, ability. And so, you know, even their national championship, they were looking at getting, you know, six, eight games in in a national uh-huh. championship in a week's time. And they could come over here and train and have access to a lot of resources and in a condensed period get in, you know, 45, 50 games against the, the top players in the world. So that's, right. those two things combined to make it uh-huh. a really – the NPF, it's, you know, it's women's professional sports in the United States. We need any help we can get. And exactly. so, um, you know, it, these were these were teams that were ready and willing to, to play, and they had some financial backing, so they were really good partners. So, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. I just think it's, uh, again, when I went to the game, I was, uh, uh, now I guess my question at the time, because I could see, based on the roster, and I think they listed where they were from, it looked like the uh, Cleveland team had uh, international uh, diversity. But so is it, um, let's say Australia comes over, somebody gets hurt or whatever, something happens. Can they pick up someone that's not from Australia just to fill a roster? Yeah, they can do whatever they want. So Australia had some Americans. I think they had a couple of Americans. Uh Um, The Cleveland roster last year was about, I would say, 60% Team Mexico and 40% Uh American. Um, The the Canadian team is the only one that did not have Americans that they weren't considering for their national team. Uh They they wanted their squad to be their national team because just like they were using it. And they thought... So what you saw Australia add and China add, 
um, with, with pitching so that mm-hmm. they could be, you know, competitive and not have right. to just throw their aces' arms off. Now, um, I've got this is a two-part question. Um, in 2007, when you took on the job, I think you said that was the, the creation of a job. So you got natural challenges just with that. Uh, also, challenges today in 2020. We're going to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 and the impact of that, but uh, structural or just your role, 2007 challenges and today's challenges, what are they? Quite few, um, I'm sure. So if, 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 yeah, if you put, if you put COVID-19 out of it, because that is its own category, but just 2007 to 2019, I would say, is women's professional sports in the United States. And it's uphill Mm -hmm. backwards in a snowstorm. It is a challenge. It is, you know, uh, corporate America does not turn its head for that. Network television does not turn its head in general for women's Mm -hmm. professional sports. So I think that... um, that is a challenge. You know, you are, you are, we're the equivalent to um, baseball, major league baseball. And um, the year, maybe 1905, something like that on quick math. Uh So it's just, you know, in 1905 guys made peanut butter jelly sandwiches and put them in their bag and (laughs) ate them in between a double header. You know, uh-huh. that's the way that went. Or they went to the concession stand and bought something. It's not uh-huh. it's not uh, Major League Baseball, you know, over a century later. So I think that um, it's a challenge and to make, um, to, to be relevant and to continue to compete. So the NPS, this would have been our 17th season, and that would make us, um, and you could even add the Coles family to it, and it goes way deeper than that. And it's uh-huh. it, it's the longest women's professional team sport in existence with consistency. So I think, but it's hard. And it, uh-huh. what it means is, you know, you don't have the luxury to have uh, 35 people on staff. You know, we have three, uh-huh. and uh-huh. so I, and so you wear a lot of hats, and you ask a lot from the people that that work. Uh, for the league and in the league, we use a lot of interns. We ask a lot of our interns. And mm-hmm. so you you ask for help a lot, and you have people overperforming in jobs and multitasking, to put it mildly. And you um, those I think those challenges were there on day one, and I think they're still mm-hmm. there because I think the yeah. progress is slow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's super it's disappointing i guess i I don't know there's probably a lot of um words we can describe now i did see um what this year you up the minimum salary for the team is it is it based on total or is it player is it the team minimum salary or player and it increased it it increased in 2018 to 175,000 per team Mm -hmm. yeah per team yeah, right. And that's just to keep, obviously, um, you're not going to pay too much anyway because of, there's just not a lot of funding, but that's just to keep it as fair and equal as you can keep it. 
Yeah, and last year we let. Uh, I thought we had a. Uh, we launched a really good, great program last year and saw it have a lot of success. And that was the on-player ad location, where we gave mm-hmm. players a couple locations on them that they mm-hmm. could go get a sponsor themselves, and they mm-hmm. were able to go get people that are in their network. They're mm-hmm. in their families and the maybe their alumni network or their. Uh, family, friends, or whoever, you know, community supporters that knew them since they were little. And, you know, it's nobody that the league is going to get as a major sponsor. So we we did not feel any competition, but they were able to go get those. Those were a minimum of $2,500 and they got um, all but $250 went directly to the player, um, regardless of how much it was for. Mm -hmm. $5,000 sponsorship. We still took $250 to activate it. And, um, you know, it was over $140,000 went directly in the player's pocket. So we were really proud of that. And it was was just kind of a creative way to think of Mm. how can other people help while we're still Mm. waiting for corporate America and, um, you know, and and television and major media partners to come along. Yeah. Yeah, it is definitely a challenge. And as I said, it's it's been a challenge for uh, women's professional sports for a long time. seems like women's basketball, a professional basketball league, uh, was climbing. But doesn't it – I don't know if you follow it that much, but I know you played. I played some basketball, too, in college. and um, But it seems like it's kind of uh, plateaued, I guess. You know, I think I think they're still doing well, but it looks mm-hmm. a whole different animal because the NBA, um, particularly Commissioner David Stern, saw it as uh, something that he wanted to be part of his legacy was to help women yeah. and to establish mm-hmm. a women's league. And he did that and he leveraged the power and positioning of the NBA um, to do so. And so that's why you saw uh, the kind of rise to power that we that we saw in the WNBA and popularity mm-hmm. and the NBA, yeah. even though uh, I think you've seen more autonomy over the years develop in the WNBA, the NBA has always been there like a big brother and mm-hmm. and really had their arm around them and really helped them with some of the national sponsorships and certainly their their media rights deal and so that's. That's a difference maker. That's somebody seeing yeah, uh, a need for help and having the means mm-hmm. to do it, and, and they did it. So I think, I, actually, I think the NBA numbers continue to go up with their attendance and their oh, um, their yeah. uh, viewership. So that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, and uh, I saw somewhere in in my research that Major League Baseball was involved a little bit. Are they or not with you all? No. They're okay. involved, uh, not at all, right now, actually. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be, of course, a, a big help. But you know, again, there's um, all kinds of issues there. I'm sure. Um, well, okay. Uh, the one thing Go I ahead. do like to say about that, Holly, is that um, it's it's not even about writing a check. It's mm-hmm. about just the leverage, the connections, the introductions, the the partnership that could exist that really doesn't show away from that big brother organization. So it's just a right. matter of if it's important or, or not. And I well, just actually, think you're going to see ahead. differences. 
Yeah, I, mean, I would think it would, even would enhance their reputation. It would improve it, I would think. Yeah, you, I, you and I agree on yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I guess uh, let me ask you, and that just popped in my head. Um, do you feel that there, part of this job involves a little bit of uh, gender equity activism? Oh yeah, or, I don't think yeah. I don't think I don't see how you could do the job without it. You know, I right. I don't think. Listen, every bit of my life up to the MPS, I I I didn't ever see the slight. Honestly, and maybe mm-hmm. that that was maybe that's on me. Maybe that's my ignorance. But mm-hmm. you and I talked about my career to start mm-hmm. this out, and I can go back to St. Joseph, Missouri as a girl and then as a, as a little girl and then going into Missouri Western there and high school and all of that, I never felt slighted. But when uh-huh. we won the national championship, the local bank gave us this mini bus that was super cool. It was for women. It was for uh-huh. women's athletics. I think we were moving around better than the guys. And certainly <laughs> yeah. we had crowds and attention and support. So, I didn't feel any inequity until I got into women's. And then I think, you know, and I think it would, um, you know, I wish there was a, there was a way for people to, uh, you know, live a life in the day of. And I think if mm-hmm. people, you know, I think from the outside, people think we just need to work harder or we just need to be a little smarter <laughs> or we just, you know, we just need to call this person or that person. And they, people don't really realize how many walls you run into, right. and right. the sentiment that exists um, that has nothing to do with elevating women or doing what's fair or mm-hmm. right. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's it's interesting <laughs> observation that you made, but I, I think that all of that came with the NPF for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you don't. Don't, and I think it's really, I guess, um, um, current as the stuff we're dealing with with uh, uh, race and the things that uh, people are talking about and uh, what people of color, African American people, deal with with police. And obviously, I think we all probably agree that most police are good and most protesters are not rioting. <clears throat> but um, I think the I just had this conversation with a friend of mine. I think the conversation is uh, partly um, if you if you believe that everything you do is in only from hard work. I mean, I think you're going to miss it because there's people of color that can't get health care. They can't get a lot of things just because they're black. And there's women that cannot succeed in a lot of ways just because they're women. And uh, no other reason. They, they may be gifted more uh, and probably could be gifted more than anybody else, but they just can't get there. So it's really, I don't know. I, we can, I'm sure we could probably talk about this on another show. But <laughs> Well, and I, I would add to that that the, that the current conversation uh, is about not being able to completely understand that if you're not in those exact Uh shoes and that we need to have dialogue and we need to understand each other and that things do need to be 
uh, a lot more fair and a lot more equitable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's great. It's great that we're having these types of conversations and hopefully uh, people realize that all of us realize we need to listen a a little closer and try to Mm -hmm. try to express a little bit more empathy and trying to understand how others feel um, when it's made right, right in front of us. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. So, uh, Let's talk about COVID. It uh, had to be pretty painful, pretty difficult. I mean, I, I think it seemed like it was pretty much a decision you had to make, but you had to, you ended up shutting down the 2020 season. Had to be difficult. What adjustments are you going to make? Uh, if you can talk us through all of those decisions and what you're going to be doing with that. Well, I think when you make any, any decision, if what you try to make sure of is that the emotion is removed. So if you put the emotion in it, you think, oh my gosh, all the things I said, you know, we, if, you, if you add the WPSL in, we're the longest running women's professional sports league and we were mm-hmm. going on our 17th season and we were pre-Olympics and we had all these things going and, and that kind of, you know, gives you that horrible feeling in your stomach. Uh-huh. But to just look at the logistics of it. This is not, this is not somebody getting scraped up. This is not, uh, you know, there's not the possibility here that somebody sprains an ankle. Uh, COVID-19 comes with death. The, the, it can result in, um, in people dying. And so uh-huh. the, the logistics of that are that if you are going to play a sport, that you have to be able to make every effort and it has to be a decidedly good one percentage wise that you are going to be able to keep your athletes safe. The people that are going to play it and compete that there's an upside for the whole experience and that you can keep them safe. And what that would have taken from the league, financially and just personnel wise to be able to activate that and make sure it was done properly. We just weren't capable of. And so it, it was, again, if you, if you look at it with any emotion at all, it's gut wrenching. If you look at it from just black and white logistics on how do we do this foregone conclusion that we were not, we were not capable. We were not set up to be right. able to, launch that type of intensity and ensure safety and responsibility. So is there a consideration of, uh, have, I, I haven't seen anything, or is it completely shut down? Or are you going to try to do like a, an abbreviated season, any kind of adjustments there? Or is it just going to go to 2021? Yeah, from a league standpoint, it's going to go to 2021, and we're going to, at the time that we feel like we can make those plans, we're going to do that. And, um, again, you know, we have we have teams coming from Canada that need to cross the border and not right. be quarantined. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we need to, for the Australian players to be able to get on a plane and actually get here and and, and not these are teams that are training for the Olympics. So you don't uh-huh. want them to have to take 14 days ever to be isolated and not be able to train. So they have to make those decisions. And, you know, we have to see how, how this evolves. 
Um, but it, for the league, it's that. Let's look ahead to 2021. For I think Chicago is uh, the Chicago Bandits are making plans to bring their players into market and let them work out and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, train and do all of those things. Uh, and, I, and, you know, you may see some, uh, some scrimmages and things like that from them. But from, as far as league sanctioning, there's, there's no action at all in 2020. So I have to ask this. I assume that's impacting your all's financial health. Uh, uh, not, you know, not really. Not too bad? Not, not okay, a lot. It, mm-hmm. it, yes and no. I mean, you know, there is, uh, there's, there's kind of two sides to that. You know, we didn't put our, – our major expense categories are our draft and our championships. Mm. And neither one of those happened this year, so there's that. Um, you know, on the same time, you know, teams pay league management fees, and those types of things have been affected. But um, at, at the end of it, you know, we aren't the people sitting here with um, television rights deals that we're losing and uh, non-endemic partnerships that we're losing. Right. Those things for us don't really exist anyway. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good. So um, to kind of finish up here a little bit, I try to keep this within an hour. Um, you're, you've worn a lot of hats. So you've worn the hat of the athlete, the hat of the instructor. Um, you know, I don't think I saw, have you actually, Not that sounds the word actually, have you done coaching on the field? I have, yes. I was, I was a Division uh, One coach for four years. Okay, great. Uh, where was that? At Austin P. Austin P. Okay, in Clarksville, Tennessee. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. Um, so since you've worn all these hats, instructor, coach, uh, administrator, player, obviously, and I try to get some advice before we get off from like any kind of advice to the young either athletes, maybe the young athletes that have the desire to eventually play at the professional level that would be probably the best direction. Yeah. You know, I think I, I always take this twofold because parents are such a big part of uh, athlete development anymore. You know, when we were young, we were really responsible in large part for our own development. You know, you did a lot of that just playing in the backyard or the street or whatever. Um, but now parents take an active role in the training of um, almost all young athletes. So, I always tell parents to do your homework, do your due diligence, make sure that you find um, really good trainers. And um, I think even if you don't understand something like softball pitching, I think that things should make sense to you. I always said that, you know, this isn't highly complicated. The the Mm -hmm. second that what I'm saying doesn't make sense, you should find a new instructor. Um, and I should be able to answer every question you have, and I should be able to break it down easy enough for you to understand it. So I think that's the obligation of a of a teacher. Mm-hmm. So I think that you should find quality instructors because if you get down the wrong road, if somebody teaches you for five years that two and two equals seven, it's mm-hmm. going to be hard to undo all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think that's important, and I think that's kind of the responsibility of a parent and, and to hopefully take an active role 
in that development, in the practice. And there's a lot of parents that are really good at, uh, you know, it's, you talked about my book at the uh, uh, onset of this. Uh, you know, I think, I think a lot of times just going step by step again, it's, it's not, you don't have to have done it. It's not extremely hard. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, making progress and having the time. So I think that, and I think from a, my advice to athletes is always assuming that you are surrounded with intelligent quality instruction and coaches, be coachable because at every level of your development, there's going to be new challenges. If you're 30 years old playing professionally in the national pro fastage league and you're going out this season with, you know, all the accolades and decorations you could imagine in in your war chest, I think you still have to be a little better this year because the hitters you got last year are going to be ready for you this year. And so mm-hmm. you always have to continue to get better. As long as you're competing, you have to continue to get better and be coachable because if you're going to surround yourself with people that know what to say to you to make you better, why wouldn't you listen? Mm-hmm. So I, I think those two things, I think in, in, in just in that aspect alone, if you want to be a great player and you want to be a pro one day or um, any, you know, reach the highest level of your potential, I think that's the advice. Great. Um Last one, maybe, hopefully, maybe the last one that we get off here and stuff. I know you're super busy. I appreciate you taking your time to be on the show. Uh, you've been part of the game at the championship level since 1982 and before. Uh, at different levels, you say coaching, administration, of course, with, uh, since 2007. What I'm sure the game has changed so much since 82, but maybe in the last five, 10 years, have you noticed any changes? And if you have, what have you noticed mostly? Um, I think the game, the level of the game, the maybe not the top tier players, but the depth of the talent mm-hmm. is. I think growing every single year. And I think that's a testament to television. And that's a testament to the wild success we've seen at the college level and the the mm-hmm. people who have succeeded and who have been great at that level and who have been gracious in sharing the information with other people that can spread it to more and more and more young players. So I think we do a better job of training the masses. And I think our sport, the big, the most notable thing about our sport is its popularity and the fact that it's reached a whole new level in audience and followers and fans than we've ever seen um, for women's softball. So that's, that's, a, that's the difference. And that's the, that's the impact um, that we're experiencing and seeing is that people now understand our sport and the fact that, you know, this year in 2020 ESPN announced over 1,600 games will be carried on the family of networks, um, including digital coverage streaming for ESPN. Mm-hmm. That's, 
that's just that. That's just ESPN. That's not the Big Ten Network. That's not the Pac-12 Network. That's not Fox. It's not the regional coverage. So mm-hmm. that's uh, unbelievable. But just it like is. anything, we see that, you know, it lifts it up and it lifts itself up uh, when it has that type of exposure. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing and the the growth and two things that I've noticed I was out of this out of uh, uh sports I was like in the corporate world for a while and then I got back into the uh, coaching got back into instruction uh a few years ago. Uh the the cool thing I've noticed in in doing this show is I've had uh coach Alameda on here, I've had uh coach Walker from uh, UCLA, but people different people the desire and passion that you all have to be ambassadors to the sport, other sports seems to be ambassadors to their team, but not so much to their sport. Um, and But it's, it's very clear that a lot of people are doing everything they can. It's almost uh, organic. It's DNA type of stuff. They're just, they love their sports so much, and it's not so much about them or their team. It's about building softball. Yeah, I, I think that you've seen that. I think from the college community, uh, I think that you – and I'll go way back to <laughs> that saying, uh, there's an old Barbara Mandrell song, uh, I was country when country wasn't cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I go back to, you know, Mike Kendrea. When Mike Kendrea was on top of the world in winning championship after championship at um, Arizona – Mm-hmm. You could find him at the convention that other top coaches weren't even attending. You could mm-hmm. find him there, and people would walk up to him and say, Coach, will you will you tell me about this? Or I was on the speaking circuit with Mike um, for several years, and, you know, he would walk off the stage. He'd, first of all, he was very transparent on the stage, and he would walk mm-hmm. off the stage and – talk to people, answer their questions. Uh And he said at one point, you know, this sport's going to get better when we help each other. And if I'm winning, I need to be helping people. And he, he, you know, he walks the talk and he he does it to this day, but he was the first one that I really noticed that wasn't afraid of that. He wasn't Uh afraid that every, he said, if I make other people better, I'm going to make myself better because I, I uh-huh. compete against them. So, you know, it's just a really, a, a really cool thing. And I won't ever forget that about Coach Kendrea. And I think now you've seen more of that. I think the people uh-huh. um, that learn from him, either directly or indirectly, um, under, understand the process. And that has been uh, reciprocated and it has been uh, mimicked um, on down the rank. Yeah, that's that's super cool. By the way, we just got looks like we have somebody that's calling it. I can take live callers. So you got a few more minutes? Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay, caller, go ahead. It's a six four six five oh or excuse me, six four six five oh five number. Are you there? <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, no, Are I'm you there? Just listening, just listening. Oh, okay. Oh, I was just listening in right here. Just listening in. Okay, great. All right, thank you. I'll put you on mute then so we don't get uh, feedback. 
Okay, so we're pretty much finishing for the for the day. I appreciate so much being here. I think uh, so. Twenty twenty one going to start back up. You have uh, what was it? Uh, six teams in the league at this point, or has that changed? Five. We had five, five. teams for twenty twenty. Uh, okay, and uh, the website link is on the description of this show. You can go on there to get the schedule. Uh, go to games. It, it's uh, you know it is really really good softball, and it, and uh, I know if you're listening from the Louisville Ohio Valley area, there's a team in Southern Illinois. There's what uh, is Cleveland still have the team up there? Yeah, they sure do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, uh, get out and see the softball, and and hopefully soon we'll be back on the field full fledged and not worry about all this virus stuff. Thanks a lot, Holly. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. So that is Sherry and uh, Sherry Kemp from the National Pro Fast Pitch. She's the commissioner of the league. Been there since 2007. Appreciate her being on here. It's uh, it's super cool to uh, get feedback, get some information and, and advice from someone who's been a major part of the sport for uh, for many years. So appreciate that. And uh, we're going to close here. Just make sure uh, that you uh, join us. We're here Monday at noon, typically. Sometimes that changes. We're also Thursday talking softball with future stars of sports, Ron Ray, and I talk about things going on right now. We're talking about COVID-19 and getting back on the field and, and the impact of all of that. So next week, next Tuesday, we're going to have um, the Georgetown College head coach is going to be my guest. And uh, Tommy is going to be here at 12 o'clock next week on Tuesday. So that is it. I hope you have a great day, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.